First John chapter three, we're going to look at verses 11 through 18 this morning. Uh, there's a lot of differing opinions on how to split up the passage. I know if you have the New King James, it splits it up uh, differently than what I'm going to do. Uh, but I do think verses 11 through 18 are a unit. Uh, but I will begin reading at verse 10 all the way to verse 18. So first John chapter three, we'll begin reading at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that we see love in the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he laid down his life for his people, for his sheep. And thank you that none of his sheep shall be snatched from his hand. And we're thankful for the assurances that you provide. Thank you that the strength of our assurance lies not in anything that we do, but in the sufficiency of our Savior's work. Thank that he is the one who is perfect in every way. Thank that he is the one who died as that perfect sacrifice. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has been poured out and we have that anointing from the Holy One. Help us to remember this. Help us to know that we are children of God. Help us to know that we have the Holy Spirit. And we are thankful, even though we struggle with remaining corruption, we do struggle with anger. We do struggle uh, with greed. We do shut up uh, our hearts sometimes to our fellow brothers and sisters. And we are thankful that even these are forgiven in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask and pray that you'd help us as those redeemed, that you'd help us to love and not hate. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be kind. And we know that we cannot do this except by your strength and by your power, which you've wrought in us by your spirit. And we're thankful that even good works, not a means of salvation, is nonetheless an assurance of salvation. That we who are the children of God ought to love to do what is pleasing in your sight. And so thank you for the assurances that you provide. Thank you for the words that you give us in the scriptures. Thank you for the truths that we find in your word. And thank you for the commands that you give us in your word, that you give us clarity in how we ought to live as the children of God. So we ask and pray that you would comfort and assure and strengthen your saints this day, strengthen your people. We pray for any who do not know you. We pray that you would show them their sinfulness and show them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you are the God who can save. You're the God who does save. And we pray that you would save today. But most importantly, we pray that you be glorified in all things, whether it's the manifestation of your justice or the manifestation of your mercy. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us illumination from on high as we come to study difficult things. Give us the strength and insight and enlightenment that we need. And thank you that you've promised to provide this even for your people. So may you be honored and glorified now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, sometimes God's people can be fearful about using biblical characters as examples. There have been many abuses uh, in the church uh, with respect to scripture. As people take David and Goliath and make it about slaying one's giants or read the book of Daniel and say, let's dare to be a Daniel. I don't think that's the point of those books. Uh, and we need to understand what God is saying, what the what the writers are saying. But sometimes in scripture, the writers and God give us examples, whether positive or negative, regarding how we should live. And even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is given in the scriptures as an example for how we ought to live in this world. And one important caveat I need to make is what I'm not saying is that we earn our way by living. Like Christ, we don't earn our way by dying like Christ. But if we believed on Christ living and dying and we are then the children of God, we should imitate him. We should do what uh, is becoming of our Lord and Savior as those who walk in him. And after all, John has already mentioned this in first John in chapter two, verse six. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. John's point here is that if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've laid hold of Christ for eternal life, we should love and walk in a way that our Lord has walked as well. Not perfectly, but nonetheless, those who love God ought to love the things that are of God. And this is meant to be an assurance for the people of God. Remember, this whole book is all about assurance. John writes to the church in Ephesus, I write that you might know that you have eternal life. And one way we can have assurance that we have eternal life is with respect to the test concerning our life. It's not going to be perfect, but do we some degree love our fellow brothers and sisters? Do we to some degree love our neighbor as ourselves? Not a way of salvation, a means of salvation, but nonetheless, an assurance that we are Christ's. How do we know that we are Christ? How do we know that we are God's? Well, the first assurance is that we are in Christ in the gospel, but also as John structures his letter, he structures it like a sermon. We live in the light. And then we're on to the second point of that sermon. We live as children of God, children of God, shun sin and pursue righteousness. Children of God do not hate and children of God thus love. And we do so based upon Christ's finished work and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which we have. And the problem in this section is very clear. The problem is hatred. The problem is murder. The problem is jealousy, hatred, and murder. Those three that go together. And when we consider hatred, when we consider murder, when we consider sin, first of all, sin festers and builds in the mind, doesn't it? We see something we want. We see people receive something that we would like. Hatred begins to build and then it boils over sometimes for some people into actual murder. If it is left unchecked, murder in the mind will actually lead to murder in reality. We don't like what other people do to us or we are jealous of other people, which then leads to heinous things that occur. And remember, murder isn't just killing someone, but as Jesus says, it is being angry in the heart. Anger, unrighteous anger is unbecoming of the people of God. And yet we still struggle with it. Yet we still struggle with unrighteous anger. 
And so is there a place that we can go as there's someone who can help us in our struggles with anger? Well, in John 3, verses 11 through 18, John is commanding the church to love one another. That is his command. God's people ought to love one another. And he provides an example of hate and an example of love. And so those are the two main points, actually, this morning. An example of hatred, verses 11 through 13. Then secondly, an example of love, verses 14 through 18. So an example of hatred, an example of love, based upon this commandment to love one another. And so let's first look at an example of hatred in verses 11 through 13. And the context in which we are in has to do with the idea of the children of God. How is it that we live as the children of God? Well, the children of God ought to pursue and practice righteousness. Those who are the children of God in their Christian life, as they are being sanctified, seek to put to death sin and seek to grow into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our Christian life. That is our calling. That is God's plan for your life, that we die to sin and grow into the image of our Lord and Savior. Those who are righteous, those who've been justified, will seek to, by God's grace, walk in righteousness. And this is how one can have assurance and how whether one is a child of God or the child of the devil is manifested. And that's exactly what John says in verse 10. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? The language that he uses in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. This is a transition verse. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there are these categories throughout scripture, children of God and children of the devil. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when we see the first proclamation of the gospel, the promise, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so we have these categories that go throughout scriptures, especially in Genesis. And we certainly see this with Cain and Abel. Cain is of the line of the devil, as we're going to see, and Abel is of the line of the woman or of the child of God. But John is very clear. here; It is tough stuff to wrap our head around. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So then he goes on to unpack this idea of love versus hate. And he gives us that overarching command in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now notice that foundation, that which you've heard from the beginning. We've seen the language from the beginning throughout 1 John. It can refer to several different things. Sometimes it can refer to the beginning of time. Sometimes it can refer to the beginning of Christ's ministry, which we see in chapter one. And sometimes it can refer to the time when the people in Ephesus first heard the gospel. And the reason he emphasizes this here, and I think the meaning here is the first time they heard the gospel, is to emphasize novelty 
uh, versus antiquity. What is new is not a good thing. What is ancient is far better. What is ancient is far more necessary and far more needed. Here's what Jesus has said. Here's what the apostles have heard. Here's what the apostles have handed down. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, which you need. The false teachers are coming along and saying, here's something new. Don't worry about that old stuff. We need something that is new. We need something that is novel. We want something that nobody in the history of the church has ever said before. And when we talk about new things, we're not talking about new things you've never heard before, but new things that have never been heard before. New things that have never been mentioned in the church, or if they have, they've been struck down very quickly. You see, there is nothing new under the sun. All the heresies that we deal with today happened in centuries past, and they were struck down. That's why the people of God need to know something of church history to understand the gospel that has been handed down throughout the ages. I'm not saying there aren't problems or issues or imperfections throughout the ages, but nonetheless, even as I prepare and as I go through texts and read the verses and then check with the commentaries, if I say something nobody has ever said, I should probably change, right? If I go through what my, you know, my process and I think this is what the text is saying and I read everybody else and none of them say what I'm saying, the problem is probably not them. It's probably me, isn't it? You see, that's why we need to read. That's why we need to study. That's why we need to understand. And even as he started the whole gospel, or started the whole um, letter with the gospel in chapter one, the things that I saw. The things that we saw, the thing which is Christ, whom we saw from the beginning. And so, the, so he says, this message that you heard is not novel. This message that you heard is from the beginning. And notice the message that we should love one another. It's an ancient command, isn't it? To love one another. And he's already talked about the idea of love and hate in connection with the commandments in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And this connects to the other mention of the word message. The other time he mentions this is the message is in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you. So we hear from Christ that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolute moral purity, and if we say we are in the light, we ought to walk as those in the light. And he goes on to unpack this in connection with the commandments in chapter 2. It's not a new commandment, it's an ancient commandment. You've heard the commandment to love God and love one's neighbor. It's an old commandment. Then he goes on to talk about how it's a new commandment, but it's not new in substance. It's new in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we cannot keep the commandments ourselves. Christ kept it for us. And as those who've been saved in him and are part of the light, should we not then walk in the light? And he goes on to talk about that walking in the light with love and hate and uh, that type of language in verses 9 through 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
And so the message is ancient. Love one another. The, do- the truth that is handed down is ancient. God is light. Notice doctrine and devotion go hand in hand. Right doctrine, right practice. If we are in the light through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, should we not then walk in the light as the children of God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. It's a very simple command But it's very hard for the people of God to do. And our neighbor, who is our neighbor? Well, first and foremost, if you have a family, that's your first neighbor to love, isn't it? To love them the most. You know, the family is the microcosm of society and the microcosm of the church. If you want to love other people, it starts with your family. Love your families, care for your families, then branch out. And then you love, especially the brethren, as Paul says in Galatians. Then we can branch out further to those who are outside the church of Christ. But when we consider what it means to love one another, it is very much connected with the commandments. And if we could boil down what it means to love, it really means to do good to someone else. Do good toward another. Not a fuzzy feeling. Not a warm thing that bubbles up inside you, but actually doing good towards other people. Considering others better than yourself, me considering others better than myself. An interest in an affection for a love for one another. Doing good for another. Someone not named you, someone who doesn't have the name that you have, but in consideration for other people. That is the ancient command to love one another. We'll unpack, unpack that more when we get to verse 14. But before we get there, we see the opposite. Not, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Cain showed that he was a child of the devil. Esau shows he is a child of the devil. We see uh, Ishmael is a child of the... That's hard stuff for us, isn't it? But it manifests. Again, there is this parallel track that is going on throughout Genesis and throughout history. But we see not as Cain. He was the one who was of the devil. He was of that wicked one. And what does he do? He murders his brother. Jealousy, hatred, and murder of Abel. And one thing that John does here is he unpacks why that happens. If you know your Bibles, you know that Genesis, that uh, the, when Cain kills Abel, it comes all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. This is after the fall. This is after Adam and Eve bring sin and misery into the present world. It doesn't take long for their offspring to do something terrible. And we see it has to do with righteousness. It has to do with faith. It has to do with worship. Abel, verse 4 of Genesis 4, brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. 
Then we see now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So we see that worship connection, but the New Testament unpacks for us and explains what is going on here. We see in Hebrews 11, verse 4, we see how it was by faith Abel offered up sacrifices. Don't you love how the New Testament interprets the old for us? That's an important principle when it comes to interpreting God's word. The new interprets the old. The clear interprets the unclear. You have to have both of them go hand in hand. And as unfolding revelation comes, we see Hebrews 11 explains that it was by faith. Abel offered up sacrifice, but also John explains it has to do with righteousness and how Cain was jealous while he was evil in his works, but he was also jealous of his brother's righteousness. And he does so by way of a question. He explains this by way of a question. Verse 12. And why did he murder him? That's to draw us in, isn't it? Why did he murder him to cause us to stop and think? Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. One was of the child of the devil and one is of the child of God. And he received that righteousness provisionally by faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11. It's an issue of faith and righteousness. Abel had faith. Cain did not. It's an issue of whom one belongs to, a child of the devil or a child of God. Stott says jealousy lay behind his hatred, not the jealousy which covets another's greater gifts, but that which resents another's greater righteousness. Not we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Cain is the prototypical example of murder, the prototypical example of anger, the prototypical example of hatred that we see throughout all of history. And it starts here with Cain, doesn't it? And he's going to apply the murderer aspect in verse 15 to whoever hates his brother is a murderer. But Cain, not as Cain, there's going to be hatred There's going to be jealousy. There's going to be murder. But God's people are not supposed to do that. And notice he goes on to then explain in verse 13. He brings some application. Since there's hatred in this world, do not be surprised by it. (laughs) Do not be surprised. Do not marvel, verse 13, but my brethren, if the world hates you. And again, world can mean different things throughout the scriptures. It can mean Jew and Gentile. It can mean the actual physical world. But it can also mean those who are opposed to God. And I think that is in view here. Do not be surprised, dear brethren, if and when the world hates you. There is this antithesis, isn't there? Children of God and children of the devil. And they're going to butt heads. And they've always butted heads throughout history. And sometimes it rises up within families, doesn't it? Like Cain and Abel. Perhaps you've experienced that in your family as well. There's this antithesis, and we don't know in the end quite yet because we're not there, but it might be the case. Well, it's because of sin certainly building up, but it might be the case a family member might manifest that they are the children of the devil, which is a very sad thing to think about. While there's still breath, there is still hope, but there is this antithesis that happens because of sin. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised by hatred in this world, brethren. We shouldn't be surprised when people don't like Christians. I mean, sometimes people want everything to be hunky-dory and people long for a time where there's going to be worldwide Christian influence. And certainly that would be a wonderful thing, but that's not exactly what we've been told, is it? Do not marvel, dear brethren, if the world hates you. Don't you love how the Lord God tells us hard things so that when hard things happen, we shouldn't be surprised by that very thing? The world is going to hate us. The world is going to despise us. Jesus warns us about this. He warns the disciples about this in the upper room in John 15. He tells the disciples to love one another in John 13 and 15. But we shouldn't be surprised in this world filled with sin and misery and hatred of God that those who are of God shall be hated. In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. Our heaven is our home. That is what we long for. The reality is this world is going to hate us. Do not marvel at that very thing, dear brethren. Do not be surprised by that very thing, dear brethren. Be prepared to be hated by people in this world. And as the people of God, we should then also not hate one another, right? I mean, that's the clear application. We should not hate one another. We should not, as Cain, murder one another. And certainly, hatred does, is connected with the sixth commandment, as Jesus applies that in Matthew chapter 5, talking about it's not just with actual murder, but it's with our minds and our words. We might slice and dice in our minds, right? And then we stab and poke with our words, and then hopefully it never arrive, comes to the point where we actually literally stab someone. But that's how it builds up, doesn't it? Starts here comes out this way and then it comes to that way doesn't it things we don't like happen to us and we respond in an angry sort of way that's what anger is it's our pride being challenged it's our lives being challenged and we are so arrogant to think that uh, that shouldn't be happening to us and so what do we do we respond with hatred with aversion with detesting those types of things that's why Jesus warns that if you say fool in your heart that is anger that is murder. And isn't that enough to damn someone to hell forever? One violation of God's law in thought, in word, or in deed is enough to damn someone to hell forever, isn't it? That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is holy, harmless, and undefiled in word, in thought, and in deed to die on behalf of wretches like you and I. Brethren, Christ loved us. Do not hate one another. Do not despise one another. And if you do, there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to help you be more encouraging and loving. If you hate someone, if you want to tear them down, ask the Lord to help you build them up. Ask the Lord to help you speak kindly to them. Ask the Lord to help you have patience and help me have patience uh, with people in these ways. Rather than tear down, we ought to build one another up. So brethren, let us not hate let us be prepared for hatred that comes from this world. So that's an example of hatred that we see with Cain in verses 11 through 13. Let's then look secondly at an example of love in verses 14 through 18. An example of love, verses 14 through 18. And notice we see this emphatic we. 
verse 14. We know it's emphatic in the Greek for us. The world hates, but we brethren, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Jesus says something similar in John 5, 24. We've passed from condemnation to eternal life. And so there is connection here that those who are, were no longer condemned were no longer condemned to die eternally, but we have eternal life, not just who are no longer condemned. Certainly we're going to die physically, but no longer condemned to eternal death. That is certainly in view here. Spiritual death, spiritual life is involved. We know that we have passed from death to life. Again, know that assurance. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. Again, if we love one another, if we care for one another, not perfectly, but if we have consideration for our fellow brothers and sisters, that is a sign and assurance that we have passed from death to life. We pass from death to life because of Jesus Christ, and those who are then in him ought to honor and glorify him by way of loving one another. And we know that Jesus is the eternal life. We see he's the word of life in chapter one. We see he is eternal life in first John five, verse 20. And if we are in he who is eternal life, should we not then love one another? So it's an assurance. I admit there's, there's tension with these uh, uh, chapters and there's tension every time a preacher preaches. You want to assure the children of God. You want to assure the sheep. You want to remind them and encourage them and help them to know that they are the children of God. But you also want to challenge hypocrites too, don't you? You want to challenge those who might say that they believe in Christ, but they have no evidence of it at all in their life. And for those who have no evidence of it at all in their life, it's not try harder. It's believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But there is that challenge. There is that warning. There is that uh, recognition that there are those who say they are in Christ, but they've never believed upon him. And it manifests in their life. But we want to encourage. We want to assure. We want people to know that they are the children of God. We want true people to know that they are assured. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. But then we see this negative assurance, I guess, this assurance. One is not a child of God. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is where sensitive sheep go, Pastor Mike, I really struggle with anger and hatred. Whatever shall I do? Well, what we're talking about here, similar to what we talked about with verse 9. In verse 9, we're not looking for uh, perpetual perfection. But there is a difference between those who are saved and redeemed, are fighting against sin, confess that sin, hate that sin, have found forgiveness of that sin in Christ, Versus those who are perpetual and impenitent in their sin. I think William Tyndale gives a good, two good examples of each. He says, mark the sin of Saul and David. Saul ever excused his sin. Saul ever excused his sin and could not but persecute the will of God. And David confessed his sin. Do you see the difference there? Saul excused, David confessed his sin. One, true repentance does not blame shift. He confessed his sin with great repentance at the first warning, whensoever he forgot him 
self. You see, brethren, that's the difference, isn't it? God's people are going to struggle with unrighteous anger, but we confess that to God and he helps us in our walk to then endeavor to love one another. But one who abides in death, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. One who's consumed by, who's continual in, who's perpetual in that sin with absolutely no repentance at all. That's why in church discipline, we don't just excommunicate people right away. We want to give them that time to repent. But if they're impenitent and they persist, we will deal with them accordingly and appropriately and excommunicate them from the church of Christ. But there needs to be patience. There needs to be long suffering. There needs to be uh, uh, for this this manifestation uh, to further affirm itself. And so whoever hates Whoever does not love abides in death. So there is that warning. There is that seriousness that we see in verses 14 and 15. But there is encouragement that we see in verse 14 and encouragement that we see in verses 16 through 18. And it really is in verses 16 through 18. We see that example of love proper. And the example of love is our Christ. Notice verse 16. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. Isn't that what love is, dear brethren? And later on in 1 John 4, 10, he'll say something similar. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent forth his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And he's going to use the dying of Christ to be an example for how we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Paul does something similar with humility in Philippians chapter 2. We heard Brother Porter preach Philippians 2. It's it's in the section that talks about how we ought to be of the same mind and consider one another better than ourselves. Then he launches into Christ, who considered us better than himself. You see, we have a Savior who loved us, and we see his love for us in his self-sacrifice. Isn't that what love is? As you consider another... It might be at great cost to yourself, isn't it? We're all good at loving ourselves, but loving other people at the cost of ourself is very, very hard to do because we're very selfish people. But our Lord is not. Why did Jesus even come? Why did the Son even take on human flesh? It is to die, it is to suffer. It is to be buried. It is to descend into hell, as the Apostles' Creed says. And descend into hell, there's a lot of ink spilt on it. I know I've prayed it the past couple of weeks, so I just wanted to explain what I really don't know. But descended into hell probably just refers to the fact that Christ actually died and he really suffered. I don't think he literally descended into hell. But he suffered, he died, was buried, descended into hell, and was, uh, 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 um, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. And later on in the other creeds, Nicene and Athanasian, buried and descended into hell are interchanged as referring to the same thing. Christ really did die, is what he's meaning there. Christ really did come to lay down his life for wretches like you and I. He did something good for another and that another are undeserving people. 
Gill says of the life of Christ and his laying it down in the room of his people, which shows his love, his free grace and favor. For this arose not from any merit or worth in the persons he died for, not from their love, loveliness or duty, but from his rich mercy and the great love wherewith he loved them and which, though it cannot be equaled, should be imitated. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. And notice John goes on to say, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus says in John 5, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And in the context, it's bearing fruit in connection with the true vine. But it's considering others. It's being willing to die for other people. It's being willing to suffer for the sake of other people. And that starts with our family, right? Are we willing to die for our spouses? Are we willing to die for our children? Are we willing to die for them? Are we willing to die for the brethren around us? Are we willing to go to prison for the brethren around us? Are we willing to do those things? Are we willing to expend our life for another? Because Jesus expended his life for you and I. And he's using Jesus as that example. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, brethren, the hope is we would be willing to die for Christ, right? And we would be willing to die for our brethren. But another important question to ask is, are we willing to live for Christ and live for our brethren now? And notice how it's not just actually dying, but notice he gives a tangible example of how we can help one another in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's not just being willing to die for Christ and our brethren, but are we willing to live for them now? Not just under the eighth commandment, are we, but also other things. Are we willing to speak truth? Are we willing to be patient? Are we willing to speak kindly? Are we willing to think well of other people? Will love cover a multitude of sins? You hear people say all the time, I'm ready to die for Christ. Great. But will you live for Jesus now? And will you live for your family now? Will you live for your brethren now? Will you live for God now when we don't have a lot of threats from without, dear brethren? Will we live for God now and live for our brethren now? And one tangible way we can help our brothers and sisters has to do with money. I know sometimes people cop out when it comes to money and they're like, I'd rather tithe my time than my money. Thinking if money is not a nice thing to give. It's not very thoughtful. People do this with birthdays, right? They don't want to give gift cards or money because it's not very thoughtful. Can I just say money and gift cards are actually very thoughtful because maybe there's something, you know, in a world filled with inflation that people would like to buy for themselves. And so money actually might be a thoughtful thing. People are like, well, I just give money. People need money, dear brethren. And especially during this time in the Greco-Roman world, especially at the church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, when people moved to the only church, there was no Indeed.com. 
There was no government you know, um, resources used to help people find jobs. They literally left their jobs and their livelihood to come to the only church, to come to the only church at that time. And so that's why it was important that those who had more money uh, willingly, if they wanted to, sell what they had to help their brothers and sisters. And notice the idea in view. It's a disposition with what we see in verse 17. Has this world's goods? They're not bad. It's not wrong to have this world's goods. Sees his brother in need. A brother or sister who has genuine need. I know in our modern context, it's hard to determine that very thing sometimes, isn't it? Especially when you're, you know, driving down the road and there's someone who's begging for money. Are they an addict or do they really want money? You kind of wrestle with that in your head. Or at least I do sometimes. I wrestle with that in my head and I think, you know, think, you know, thinking, what should we do? How? But there are people sometimes who have genuine need and we have benevolence in our church for that very type of thing. But notice, sees his brother in need, genuine need, and notice, shuts up his heart. There is someone who actually does not have a tunic, does not have a coat. And you say, see you later. I hope you're warm. I hope everything's okay. James talks about this in James chapter 2. That's the problem, isn't it? Riches is not a problem. The love of money is the problem. And the hope and prayer is if God gives people riches, he gives people the requisite generosity to go with that very thing. We don't have to be communist. We don't have to be communal. We don't have to share everything all the time. But we should be generous, shouldn't we? And consider the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters. Consider the needs of the people of God. And money here is a tangible way to do that very thing. Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 through 8 is probably in view here. Jesus talks or uh, uh, in Deuteronomy 15. Uh, it's with respect to the poor always being among the people of God and Israel. And it has to do with the, the seventh year of release that is coming. And so one might think, well, the seventh year is coming. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year. This is verse nine. The year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and cry out to the Lord against you and it become a sin among you. That is, you must open your hand. You must be willing to provide. Beware lest you think, well, the seventh year is coming. I'm not going to get it back. That was the point, right? It's year six. You're going to lend some money. He needs some help. But the seventh year, you're supposed to release it and you're not going to get your your money back. That's what's in view here. And so what he's saying is help your brother in need. That is what is in view in verse uh, chapter 15. And that is probably in view with what we see in verse 17 of First uh, John chapter 3. And so money can be a very tangible way. Giving can be a tangible way to help our brother or sister in need. And as we do things, we must not do so. By way of lip service, but we must do it in deed and in truth. Verse 18, my little children, let us love in word or in tongue, not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How do we love one another, dear brother? Not just saying we're going to do something, but actually do that very thing. 
And when it comes to loving one another, one way is what we see with the Eighth Commandment. A, don't steal from people. It's not very loving to steal things from people, is it? But it's also not very loving to shut oneself up when God has given you um, sustenance and luxury and the goods of this world to then consider your fellow brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, doesn't he? When he talks about how we need to work hard and working hard is part of the eighth commandment, being industrious, working hard. Why? We might be able to help other people, certainly help our families, but help other people as well. That is how we love one another. Here's another way to love one another. We've talked about it. Build one another up. Don't tear people down. Ephesians 4 talks in that way. How do we love one another? We don't envy one another. We don't parade itself ourselves. We don't provoke. We, or it is not provoked. We're not self-seeking. I mean, that's what love is. Patience, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not self-seeking, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Brethren, that is how we love one another. And how we love one another comes and is based upon the Ten Commandments. How do we love our neighbor? The latter six commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That is how you love one another, dear brethren. How do you love God? No other gods before you. Don't make for yourself false idol. Uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. That is how you love God and love your neighbor. Hard to do. Thankfully, we have Christ who died in our stead. But nonetheless, that is what God's people must and ought to do. Christ loved you. Love one another. And not only is it that Christ loved you, but especially the brethren. Christ also died for them. <laughs> Just as he expended his life for you, he's also expended his life for them. And if he loves them as much as he loves you, should you not love them as well, dear brethren? It's hard, isn't it, to love? But we are commanded to do that very thing, to love one another as Christ loved us. If you're a child of God, love. Do not hate. But if you forget to love and there's hate... Is there not mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's why I appreciate how he starts the letter with chapter 1 all the way into 2, 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Sin is lawlessness. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you're a child of God, find mercy in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tyndale says those who are under mercy will still sin, but they shall never be cast out. That is the comfort that the children of God have. Let us love and let us not hate. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, the wonderful thing about the law of God is that it teaches you how sinful you truly are. And as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, anyone who hates in his heart has violated and murdered and uh, violated the sixth commandment. I know you've been angry in your heart many times. I know you violated other commandments many times. But there is one who lived the law perfectly. And if you believe upon him, you shall be saved. And if you believe upon him, you shall pass from death 
and into eternal life. Whoever believes on me shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is the words of our Lord, and I believe that to be true. Believe upon him, you shall be saved. And brethren, love as Christ loved you and lay down his life for undeserving sheep like you and I. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the work of our Lord and Savior. We know that we have not loved as we ought, and many a times we have hated when we should not have. And yet we are thankful for the power of Christ. We are thankful for the sufficiency of Christ. We are thankful for the cleansing power of Christ, who has forgiven us of all our sins. Thank you for the promise that he's forgiven us of our past sins but he shall forgive us of our future sins as well as we struggle with remaining corruption. We are thankful that you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given new hearts to your people, and we can, by your grace and by your power, love you and love one another. And we pray that we would. We pray that we would know how to love one another. We pray that we'd be willing to love one another. We pray that we would not shut up our hearts to those who are in need. We pray that we would not hate those uh, who receive good things, but that we would love and care for one another. Help us to be patient. Help us to be kind. Help us to not envy. Help us to not boast. And may we do so through Christ, who is the word of life. He is the source of life and we in him. And so we pray that you'd help us and strengthen us and aid us from on high. We pray for any here today who do not know you. We pray that you would show them their sinfulness and show them their need for Christ. Show them that one wicked thought is enough to damn them to hell forever because you are a perfect God. And yet we are thankful for that perfect sacrifice who is Christ. May they lay hold of him by faith. May you give the gift of faith. May you work by your spirit to give new hearts, uh, to give new hearts and to give that gift of faith and repentance. Thank you that Christ laid down his life for undeserving wretches like us here. Thank you that he is the one uh, who is that example for us uh, regarding how we ought to live. May we understand the placement of it in our Christian walk. And we're thankful that Christ is all we need. And as we are in him, help us to imitate our Lord and Savior. So help us to do this, we pray. Give us the strength that we need even as we come to your supper. We pray that you'd strengthen us spiritually by your spirit. And we're thankful that you strengthen us by faith and by your spirit by in Christ. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.